Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. It is a pleasure to be speaking uh, this morning in place of uh, President Hagen, who is, is uh, Pastor Josh. By the way, how many of you love Pastor Josh? What an incredible pastor and speaker uh, to be here. Now, it's Christmas. If you're not aware, it is Christmas. How many of you are aware it's Christmas? How many of you are more aware it's finals? Right, that's coming up, right? This is the season for that. Uh, I have enjoyed 12 winters in Minnesota. But you know what I enjoyed more before that? 15 winters in Los Angeles. So I moved here from L.A., spent most of my young adulthood in Los Angeles, working as a pastor, teaching at Azusa Pacific University, Um, moved to Minnesota in order to teach at North Central. Everyone would joke with me, why are you moving from California to Minnesota? My answer is always the same, it's the winters. You know, I'm coming because I want to go where there's winter. Uh, Truth is, I came because I felt called here. But when I was in L.A., a phrase I learned there that I absolutely hated was something called flyover states. A lot of times people in the West Coast would talk about the country as if the only thing that mattered was the coasts. So, you know, if you fly from California to New York, that's one thing. You fly from California to D.C., that's one thing. You fly from California to Miami, that's one thing. What matters is what's on the coast. What doesn't matter is what's between the coasts. So sometimes they would simply call the rest of the country flyover states, right? Because these are the states you fly over. And you might complain sometimes, like, man, I was on my way to Miami, and our flight had to make a stop in a flyover state, and I had to spend the night in Iowa, right? You know, I mean, like, that's where I had to go, and people would talk that way. Now, I'm from Kentucky, so I grew up in a flyover state. I don't like that phrase. But I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of times we approach Scripture the same way where we have flyover passages, where when I'm reading the Bible, there are certain passages I like to fly over. Sometimes I like to ask in my class, how big would your Bible be if you just cut out every page you haven't read in the last five years or you're not planning to read in the next five years? What are your flyover passages that you never land on? I'm giving that to you because this morning I'm going to hit what I consider to be the biggest flyover passage in the Bible, the one that we always skip over. And it's Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. It's the genealogy of Jesus. How many in reading the Gospel of Matthew have ever skipped over the genealogy? Right? I mean, it is a hard place. In fact, it's always awkward for us as Christians because Matthew 1 is the beginning of the New Testament. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you'll have a person who gets saved in the church and they're like, Pastor, I want to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start with Matthew 1. And you're like, No! We don't want to lose you with the genealogy right at the beginning, right? Our New Testament starts with a genealogy. Yet I think there's something we can really learn from that. And I'm going to look at that this morning. So we're going to get reading here. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, 
Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nishan, Nishan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, now I'm going to stop right there, because this is going to go on for 10 more verses. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. How many say, as I'm reading this, you already started to lose interest, right? Because I don't know who Nishan is. I don't know who Salmon is. I don't know who these people are. Let me highlight one thing. Genealogies in the ancient world are important in some way for the reason genealogies are still important to us. How many know there's some people who take genealogy really seriously? Because a genealogy, a personal genealogy, is your family history. Like right now, how many of you, raise your hand if you know your grandparents' name. Okay, keep your hand up if you know your great-grandparents' name. Great-great-grandparents. Great-great-great-grandparents. Great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Okay, see, some hands are still up. I once had a professor. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of you don't know these names, but you wouldn't exist if they weren't there, Right? I once had a professor in college who taught genealogy. He had traced his genealogy all the way back to the Roman Empire. And he could tell you over 2,000 years of his family history, right? That was kind of cool. The reason genealogies matter in one part is because genealogies tell our story. They are filled with stories because every name represents a story. When you learn that name, you learn something about what it took for you to be here. Well, you have TV shows right now that are on genealogies where you'll take some celebrity and they'll learn their genealogy and always in the show they start crying, you know, I didn't know this about my great-great-grandfather, you know, because it's me. I'm learning about my ancestors. I'm also learning about myself. This is what it took for me to be here. Every genealogy ends in a good place because every genealogy ends with you. Every genealogy has a good ending because you're the end of that story. That matters. It's a story. Genealogies also are important because they tell us what our rights are. Understand, when you know who your family is, in the ancient world, that told you what you had rights to, right? How I many of you ever seen a medieval movie and someone shows up and they start giving their genealogy at the beginning of introduction? You know, I am Alan, the son of Don, the grandson of Wayman, right? These are my ancestral lands. You know, like, oh, well, genealogy checks out. You have rights to this. Learning your family history also tells you what you have rights to, and finally, genealogies also give you your responsibilities. When you learn what your family is, you learn what's expected of you. I once had an uncle. Well, I still have the same uncle. But every time I would leave a family occasion, every time he'd always say the same thing to me, bye, Alan, don't shame the family. Like was his last words at every occasion. Learning who your family is is also learning your responsibility in the world because I carry those names with me. I represent a whole host of people who I'm the reason they were there. Genealogies matter at a personal level, but they also matter here in the story of Jesus. In Jesus' story, the genealogy tells us three things. It tells us, one, that Jesus comes from a Jewish family. It begins with Abraham, who's the father of all Israelites. So whatever we learn about Jesus, it's going to be a Jewish story. Number two, we're told it's the whole story of Israel. 
Because it goes from Abraham to David. It goes from David to the exile. It goes from exile to Jesus. 14 generations between each one. The point is, something significant keeps happening in this family. And if you tell the story of this family, you're telling the story of the whole nation. I tell you about who Abraham is, I'm telling you about Israel. I tell you the story of David, I'm telling you about Israel. I tell you the story of the exile, I'm telling you about Israel. So what's going to happen when I tell you the story of Jesus? I'm still telling you the story of Israel, right? But the third thing, and what I want to focus on, is what Matthew does that's unique. In this genealogy, he gives us the name of four women. And understand, in this culture, you don't tell the stories of the mothers, Because you pass it down from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. You tell the story of the men, yet Matthew in this story brings in four women. Not just women, they're almost all Gentiles. They're women who don't belong in the story of the Messiah. And he says to them, and this person was born of Perez, whose mother happened to be Tamar. And this person was born of Salmon, whose mother happened to be Rahab. What are their stories? Here's what's interesting. Every single woman mentioned in this passage, every single woman is a scandal. Every single woman is an outsider. Every single woman is also more faithful than all the people around her. Start with Tamar. We heard about her story in Genesis 38. Tamar is a Canaanite woman. She is the daughter-in-law of Judah, who is the son of Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham, right? Judah is the tribe that Jesus is going to come from. Her husband dies, and she has no children. And in the ancient world, you want to preserve a family legacy, so typically what you do is you would marry off a widow who was childless to the next son so that they could have children because a woman's retirement plan was always found in her kids. It's preserving that legacy. It's preserving that future. The second son is given to Tamar. He dies. They have no children. And at this point, Judah's kind of freaked out at giving her the third son. So he doesn't. The son grows up. There's no husband. Tamar realizes, I'm not going to be taken care of in my future. There's not going to be any children coming from this line of the family. So she does something scandalous. When her father-in-law goes out after his wife dies, he's a widower, he goes out to do his business with with, uh, farming, with pastoralism. She dresses like a prostitute. She veils herself. She sets on the side of the road where people would do their business. He's lonely. His wife has died. His time of mourning is over. He sees her, and he asks for her business. They go and do their business. He never realizes it's his daughter-in-law because he was never concerned with her face. Look at your neighbor and say, that's messed up. When they're done... She disappears. He gives her his staff as kind of collateral. When you hand the staff to someone, they'll know that we're supposed to pay you. She never shows up again. He thinks, oh, wow, that was weird, right? Three months later, he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He's furious because she's gone outside the family. He's going to have her punished. And she says, we should probably punish the man who impregnated me. Here's his staff. And he has this great line in Genesis 38 where he says, Tamar was more righteous than I. She actually did what she should have done to care for the family. I had ignored that. God had made a promise to Israel. God was going to bless the world through Israel. Tamar was the only one who was ensuring the family line. 
she was more faithful than Judah. And even though it was scandalous, Tamar becomes a grandmother of Jesus. The next person we learn about is Rahab. Rahab's story is told in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Rahab is identified in most places as a prostitute. She's not playing the part. She has the part. Now, I'll say this in the Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily mean prostitute. The word actually means someone who rents a room for the night. But that's typically how it was used. The two Hebrew spies, she's from Jericho, they're going into the promised land. They spend the night in her house, which you always wonder why are they there, but they spend the night in her house. When it finds out that they're there, she hides them. She doesn't let the Jericho police find them. And she says to them, the reason I'm hiding you is we've heard what your God did to the Egyptians. We know that your God is going to give this land, and I want to be sure that when you come in, we're on your side. Rahab believes where Israel was struggling to believe. She was more faithful. And when Jericho is taken, Rahab's family is brought into the family of Israel. And what we learn is that now Rahab becomes a grandmother of Jesus. The third grandmother is Ruth. Now, Ruth of all of these, in a sense, the less scandalous, because Ruth doesn't do anything that could be considered wrong, right? Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth's father, or her father-in-law dies. Her husband dies. She has no children. Her mother-in-law loses all of his, her kids. She has no children. Rather than Ruth going back home, she decides to stay with her mother-in-law. They're living in another land. They go to Israel, and through the story of Ruth, Ruth takes care of her mother-in-law, and even Israelites in the town, the town, by the way, is called Bethlehem, Israelites in the town say she is righteous because of the way she takes care of her mother-in-law. She does to her what we wouldn't have done. She's more faithful in the story. But here's what is scandalous about Ruth. She is from Moab. Who are the people of Moab? They're the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. In Genesis, when God is going to destroy Sodom for the crime of injustice and rape, God immediately allows Lot and his family to leave because they're righteous. Lot's daughters are engaged to be married, but their fiancés don't believe that God's going to destroy the city, so they stay behind and they're destroyed. Lot is so freaked out about what happens that he's afraid to go to another city, so he goes and lives in the mountains with his daughters, never takes them back to civilization, and his daughters are freaked out because we were about to be married... Now we're living alone with this crazy old hermit. When he dies, what are we going to do? So one night, they get their dad drunk. And while he's drunk, they rape him. Look at your neighbor and say, that's messed up. The eldest daughter and the youngest daughter both get pregnant, and the name of the eldest daughter's son is Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. He's an ancestor of Ruth. And here's what's so crazy. If Ruth is a grandmother of Jesus, then that makes Moab a grandfather of Jesus. And when you're reading the story of rape and incest, you're reading a story about the history of the family of Jesus. Ruth, because of her faithfulness, redeems this entire family. Now Moab belongs to the story of Jesus. We come to the last one, 
And she's not even named in this chapter. We know her name because she's named in another chapter. It's the wife of Uriah. Her name's Bathsheba. Her history in some ways is the worst of all because it involves David. David was king, 2 Corinthians or 2 Samuel chapter 11. David decides one day not to go off to war with his commanders. He's sitting on his rooftop, which is taller than all the other rooftops in Jerusalem. He sees a young woman bathing on her rooftop, because that's where you would bathe. He sins for her. They spend the night together. Not a love story, just a one-night stand. As soon as it's over, he sends her back. Finds out she is the wife, did this, actually found out before this, she's the wife of one of his commanders who's not in town. She sends word to him, I'm pregnant. And right now, David has a problem because in the ancient world and today, one of the worst things you can do as a military commander is take advantage of the wives of your soldiers. Because they trust you with their lives, you can't put that at risk. Even though he's king, that is a massive no-no. David has a problem because if it's found out that while Bathsheba is in the while Uriah is in the field, his wife Bathsheba is pregnant by the king who didn't go to war with them, not one of his soldiers is going to trust him. David has to hide this. So he first sends for Uriah to come back to town to spend the night with his wife, so at least when she's pregnant, everyone else is like, oh, well, they had that one night together. But Uriah is more faithful than David. And he says, I'm not going to spend the night with my wife when my men are still in the field. I'm going to sleep outside like they have to. David has to do something. So here's what he does. He gives orders to Uriah that are sealed. And he says to him, send this to the general. It's my message to him. The orders actually read, make sure Uriah dies in battle. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence and doesn't know it. And part of the tragedy of this is the way they make sure Uriah dies in battle is by the general doing a stupid military move that doesn't just kill Uriah, it kills other soldiers. So now how many families in Israel are husbandless and fatherless because David has to cover up a crime? David quickly marries Bathsheba. So now when it turns out she's pregnant, everyone's going to be like, oh, congratulations, an early birth. But it says the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. David eventually pays for that throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. And what I think is so interesting is this. When God calls David on the carpet for it, here's what God says to him. He says, you were nothing but a shepherd in Israel, and I took you from the fields, I made you a king, I gave you armies, I gave you palaces. If that had not been enough, David, I would have given you more. How dare you take the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and then you take his life. And here's what's so crazy to me. Uriah is not even identified as Jewish. He's identified as a Hittite. David is the anointed one of God. In that story, he's the Messiah. And what we learn in 2 Samuel 12 is when it comes to justice, God will choose the Hittite over his own Messiah if it's the Hittite who's been done wrong. Just being God's anointed doesn't mean you can get away with stuff. Just being God's anointed doesn't mean you can commit injustice against someone else because God always takes the side of the one who was wronged. And how do we see that in Matthew 1? Bathsheba is the mother, David is the father, but Uriah the Hittite gets his name in the genealogy of Jesus. 
God can forgive our sins, but God doesn't forget the wrong that was done to us. Uriah is always remembered. These four Gentiles, Uriah, Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, all four of them have scandalous stories, yet all four of them were more righteous than the Jews around them. They all belong to the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why is Matthew doing this? Because this is kind of shocking. If you're reading this in Matthew 1, you know the history of Israel. You know what these stories mean. You're thinking these stories as you read through the verses. Why is Matthew doing this? Well, I think in one part, it's because of how Matthew ends. I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus. Remember Tamar. Remember Rahab. Remember Ruth. Remember Uriah's wife. Now let's talk about how Mary gets pregnant. Now let's talk about her story. Here's a woman who is unmarried and she is pregnant and Joseph wants to have to deal with her by putting her away quietly so she doesn't get humiliated or hurt. And if that offends you, that God would bring the Messiah out this way, let me remind you of the history of Israel. God has always worked through scandal. God has always worked through outsiders. God has always worked through faithfulness. Doesn't matter if you're on the outside. Doesn't matter if your history isn't pristine. Doesn't matter if your family story is embarrassing. All that matters is whether or not you're going to be faithful. Because God will work through your faithfulness. Mary was unmarried. Mary was pregnant. Mary was faithful. That's exactly how you think the Messiah is going to come. So now here's the lesson for us. Because the story of the genealogy of Jesus actually ends with Jesus, because Jesus doesn't have any biological children, it ends with him. But on the other hand, Jesus has a lot of spiritual descendants. He has a lot of people from the calling of the first disciples to Revelation 7-9, where we're given this image of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue who all belong to the family of Jesus. How many times is family imagery used in the New Testament to describe the church? God is our Father. Jesus is our joint heir. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. When we learn the story of Jesus through genealogy, it turns out to be our genealogy. Maybe not our biological one, but it is our spiritual one. The story of Tamar is the story of our grandmother. The story of Ruth is the story of our grandmother. The story of Uriah is the story of our step-grandfather. These are our stories, and they culminate in the person of Jesus. Jesus is a part of your story, but what's even more important is you are a part of the story of Jesus. Jesus is the center. It goes from Abraham to Jesus, but now it goes from Jesus to you. You are where the story is today, but it's still the story of Jesus. So here's three things I want to think about in light of this, and then we're going to close in prayer. And the first is this, don't ever let your reputation, your personal history, your family history, your past sins, your present insecurities, don't ever let any of them become an obstacle for what God can do with you. If God can use Tamar, God can use you. All that matters is that you be faithful. All these women represent outsiders who don't belong in the story, but they do. And in the same way, 
all the reasons we think we don't belong, God still calls us to be part of his family. Don't allow the messed up things of your life have a stronger pull on your identity than the calling of God. You may have a messed up history, a messed up family, a messed up identity, but God is changing that in Christ Jesus. Let that be the stronger pull. Once heard a story, I'm sure it's not true, but it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it to you anyway, of a woman who grew up, married young, was in an abusive relationship with a husband who was extremely controlling. So controlling, in fact, that he would never let her leave the house. When she got married, he would go to work. He'd make her stay at home. He would always do the shopping for them. They had kids. He would take them to school. He didn't want her to have friends. He didn't want to have her relationships. She even broke off her relationship with her family. He was very controlling. He would come home at the end of every day. He would make sure food was on the table for him. When he was done eating, he would go to the living room. He would sit in his lazy boy, and he would watch TV until bedtime, and that was their marriage. Every single day for years. Then the day comes that the mom loses her husband. He dies. And the mom who has spent years living with a controlling man, a man who's defined everything for her, a man who has not given her any life of her own outside of him, doesn't know how to go on without her husband. So she does what any reasonable person would do. She has her husband stuffed placed in the lazy boy and closed in an airtight box so that he's still there in the house that she can see. It's the only thing that gives her security, that gives her comfort. Now, her grown children are a little bothered by this, and they decide to help their mom out. They're going to send her on a cruise. So they actually buy tickets, give her the tickets for the cruise. Mom, please get out of the house, get away from dad, go see the world. She goes on the cruise, and on the cruise she meets a man who's the exact opposite of her former husband. He is kind. He is caring. He's encouraging. He's not controlling. He's not abusive. He's not belittling. She didn't know a relationship like this could happen. Within a week, she fell in love with him. He was a widower. He fell in love with her. She called her kids and said, we want to get married right now. Would it be okay for us to extend the cruise into a honeymoon? The kids were thrilled. Mom, if you're happy, go ahead. They get married. They're on the honeymoon on this cruise. When it's over, they decide because she has the larger house, they're going to move into her house. But she's never told him what's in her house. So the day comes when they're moving in. He opens the door. He wants to carry her across the threshold as well as he can. He walks in. He sees what's in the living room. And he says to his new bride, I love you. I support you. I will do whatever I can to encourage you and to help you be who you are. But that man has got to go. Sometimes as Christians... We have come from an abusive relationship with the world to a liberating relationship with Jesus. Jesus has become that encourager to us, that comfort to us, that one who sticks closer than a brother, that one who builds us up, that one who saves us. But we still take our old relationship and we have it in a glass case somewhere in our house. I still keep my guilt preserved. I still keep my identity preserved. I still keep my fears preserved. I still keep that past abuse preserved somewhere in my house, in my heart, in my soul. I still have this old man in a glass case. And when Jesus comes in, 
He looks at our hearts and he says, I am here for you. I have saved you. You are now who you are in Christ Jesus. That old man has to go. It doesn't matter the scandal. It doesn't matter the history. It doesn't matter the insecurities. All that matters is that God has called you. He's made you a part of the family of Jesus. And now you can have your identity in him. Your story is now his story. And it will be that way for the rest of your lives. As we close in prayer, here's what I want to pray for. I want to pray first for thanksgiving. Because God has allowed us to be a part of his story. And how many of you know there's not one person here that deserves it? But there's not one person in here who doesn't belong. We want to give God thanks. I also want to pray for those of us who may be struggling with those identity issues. Who may be allowing those insecurities, that past, that history, that scandal, that abuse, whatever it is. We're still letting that define us. We're still letting that shape who we are. We need to let Jesus have the greater pull. We're a part of his genealogy. We no longer belong to that other history. We've moved from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. We can live in the freedom of that. But then here's the third thing, and I'm just going to say this quickly. I mean, sometimes as Christians, we think we belong, but we don't think other people belong. You ever seen anyone give someone else a side eye? You ever seen someone look at someone else and they're like, what are you doing here? That look does not belong in the church. That look does not belong in the face of a Christian. If God has saved you, God can save anyone. And I want to pray for anyone in our lives that we've been giving the wrong look to. We need to change that face. Because if we belong, they belong. Lord, I want to thank you for this community. God, and I pray that you would receive our thanksgiving because you are a God who has done more for us than we could ever do back for you. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in chapel. I don't deserve to have a microphone. I don't deserve to be called your son, but you called me anyway. Lord, everyone in here shares that story. We don't belong because of what we've done. We belong because of what you've done. Thank you for making us a part of your family. God, I pray for anyone in here who is still struggling with their sense of belonging, still struggling with their sense of calling, their sense of identity, to know that they are in the right place because they're with you. God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts that their sin their guilt, their history, their scandal, their outsiderness, whatever it is, God, would recede in their lives and their hearts and that you would take the place of that. That when they look in the mirror, they would not see this other story. They would only see the story of Jesus. Let us be those who share your identity. Let your identity be who we are. And God, I pray for anyone in our lives that we've been treating in the wrong way. Anyone that we have not given the right look to. Anyone who feels more of an outsider whenever they're with us. God, I ask your forgiveness for our behavior. Help us to be people who show your grace in the same way we've received your grace. 
We all belong to the family of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live it in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask for all of our elders to come up. And as we close in prayer, we're going to move into a time of prayer and fasting. If you have any needs, any prayer requests, we are here to pray for you. Pray together in groups. Pray with the community. Otherwise, you guys are dismissed.